Section 10 of Starlight Ranch and Other Stories of Army Life on the Frontier by Charles King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story 3 From the Point to the Plains. Chapter 1 A Cadet's Sister. She was standing at the very end of the forward deck, and with flushing cheeks and sparkling eyes, gazing eagerly upon the scene before her. Swiftly, smoothly rounding the rugged promontory on the right, the steamer was just turning into the highland reach at Fort Montgomery and heading straight away for the landings on the sunset shore. It was only mid-May, but the winter had been mild, the spring early, and now the heights on either side were clothed in raiment of the freshest, coolest green. The vines were climbing in luxuriant leaf all over the face of the rocky scarp that hemmed the swirling tide of the Hudson. The radiance of the evening sunshine bathed all the eastern shores in mellow light, and left the dark slopes and deep gorges of the opposite range all the deeper and darker by contrast. A lively breeze had driven most of the passengers within doors as they sped through the broad waters of the Tappan Zee. But once within the sheltering traverses of Dunderberg and the heights beyond, many of their number reappeared upon the promenade deck, and first among them was the bonny little maid now clinging to the guard-rail at the very prow, and, heedless of fluttering skirt or fly-away curl, watching with all her soul in her bright blue eyes for the first glimpse of the haven where she would be. No eyes on earth look so eagerly for the grim gray façade of the writing-hall or the domes and turrets of the library building as those of a girl who has spent the previous summer at West Point. Utterly absorbed in her watch, she gave no heed to other passengers who presently took their station close at hand. One was a tall, dark-eyed, dark-haired young lady in simple and substantial travelling dress. With her were two men in tweeds and derby hats, and to these companions she constantly turned with questions as to prominent objects in the rich and varied landscape. It was evident that she was seeing for the first time sights that had been described to her time and again, for she was familiar with every name. One of the party was a man of over fifty years, bronzed of face and gray of hair, but with erect carriage and piercing black eyes that spoke of vigor, energy, and probably of a life in the open air. It needed not the tricolored button of the loyal legion on the lapel of his coat to tell that he was a soldier. Any one who chose to look, and there were not a few, could speedily have seen, too, that these were father and daughter. The other man was still taller than the dark, wiry, slim-built soldier, but in years he was not more than twenty-eight or nine. His eyes, brows, hair, and the heavy moustache that drooped over his mouth were all of a dark, soft brown. His complexion was clear and ruddy, his frame powerful and athletic. Most of the time he stood a silent but attentive listener to the eager talk between the young lady and her father, but his kindly eyes rarely left her face. He was ready to respond when she turned to question him, and when he spoke it was with the unmistakable intonation of the South. The deep, mellow tones of the bell were booming out their landing signal, 
as the steamer shot into the shadow of a high rocky cliff. Far aloft, on the overhanging piazzas of a big hotel, fluttering handkerchiefs greeted the passengers on the decks below. Many eyes were turned thither in recognition of a salute, but not those of the young girl at the bow. One might, indeed, have declared her resentful of this intermediate stop. The instant the gray walls of the riding-school had come into view, she had signaled eagerly, with a wave of her hand, to a gentleman and lady seated in quiet conversation under the shelter of the deck. Presently the former, a burly, broad-shouldered man of forty or thereabouts, came sauntering forward and stood close behind her. "'Well, Nan, most there, I see. Think you can hold on five minutes longer, or shall I toss you over and let you swim for it?' For answer, Miss Nan clasps a wooden pillar in her grey-gloved hands and tilts excitedly on the toes of her tiny boots, never once relaxing her gaze on the dock a mile or more away upstream. "'Just think of being so near Willie, and all of them.' and not seeing one to speak to until after parade, she finally says. "'Simply inhuman,' answered her companion, with commendable gravity, but with humorous twinkle about his eyes. "'Is it worth all the long journey and all the excitement in which your mother tells me you've been plunged for the past month?' "'Worth it, Uncle Jack,' and the blue eyes flash upon him indignantly, "'worth it?' You wouldn't ask if you knew it all, as I do. Possibly not, said Uncle Jack whimsically. I haven't the advantage of being a girl with a brother and a baker's dozen of bows in bell buttons and grey. I'm only an old fossil of a sit, with a scamp of a nephew and that limited conception of the delights of West Point which one can derive from running up there every time that versatile youngster gets into a new scrape. You'll admit my opportunities have been frequent. It isn't Willie's fault, and you know it, Uncle Jack, though we all know how good you've been. But he's had more bad luck and, and injustice than any cadet in the Corps. Lots of his classmates told me so. Yes, says Uncle Jack musingly, that is what your blessed mother, yonder, wrote me when I went up last winter, the time Billy submitted that explanation to the Commandant, with its pleasing reference to the fox that had lost its tail, you doubtless recall the incident, and came within an ace of dismissal in consequence. I don't care, interrupts Miss Nan, with flashing eyes. Will had provocation enough to say much worse things. Jimmy Fraser wrote me so, and said the whole class was sticking up for him. "'I do not remember having had the honour of meeting Jimmy Fraser,' remarks Uncle Jack, with an aggravating drawl that is peculiar to him. "'Possibly he was one of the young gentlemen who didn't call, owing to some temporary impediment in the way of light prison.' "'Yes, and all because he took Will's part, as I believe,' is the impetuous reply. "'Oh, I'll be so thankful when they're out of it all.' "'So will they, no doubt. "'Sticking up, uh, wasn't that Mr. Fraser's expression? "'For Bill seems to have been an expensive luxury all around. "'Wonder if sticking up is something they continue when they get to their regiments. 
Billy has two or three weeks yet in which to ruin his chances of ever reaching one, and he has exhibited astonishing aptitude for tripping himself up thus far. Uncle Jack, how can you speak so of Willie when he is so devoted to you? When he gets to his regiment, there won't be any Lieutenant Lee to nag and worry him night and day. He's the cause of all the trouble. That so? drawls Uncle Jack. I didn't happen to meet Mr. Lee either. He was away on leave. But as Bill and your mother had some such views, I looked into things a bit. It appears to be a matter of record that my enterprising nephew had more demerit before the advent of Mr. Lee than since. As for extras and confinements, his stock was always big enough to bear the market down to bottom prices. The boat is once more under way, and a lull in the chat, close at hand, induces Uncle Jack to look about him. The younger of the two men lately standing with the dark-eyed girl has quietly withdrawn, and is now shouldering his way to a point out of earshot. There he calmly turns and waits, his glance again resting upon her whose side he has so suddenly quitted. She has followed him with her eyes until he stops, then with heightened color resumes a low-toned chat with her father. Uncle Jack is a keen observer and his next words are inaudible except to his niece. Nan, my child, I apprehend that remarks upon the characteristics of the officers at the point had best be confined to the bosom of the family. We may be in their very midst. She turns flushing, and for the first time her blue eyes meet the dark ones of the older girl. Her cheeks redden still more, and she whirls about again. I can't help it, Uncle Jack, she murmurs. I'd just like to tell them all what I think of Will's troubles. Oh, candor is to be admired, of all things, says Uncle Jack airily. Still, it is just as well to observe the old adage, be sure you're right, and so forth. Now, I own to being rather fond of Bill, despite all the worry he has given your mother, and all the bother he has been to me. All the worry that others have given him, you ought to say, Uncle Jack. Well, hardly. It didn't seem to me that the Corps, as a rule, thought Billy the victim of persecution. They all tell me so, at least, is the indignant outburst. Do they, Nan? Well, of course, that settles it. Still, there were a few who reluctantly admitted having other views when I pressed them closely. Then they were no friends of Willie, or mine either. Now, do you know I thought just the other way? I thought one of them, especially a very staunch friend of Billy's and yours too, Nan, but Billy seems to consider advisers in the light of adversaries. A moment's pause. Then, with cheeks still red and plucking at the rope netting with nervous fingers, Miss Nan essays a tentative. Her eyes are downcast as she asks, I suppose you mean Mr. Stanley? The very man, Nanette, very much of a man to my thinking. The bronzed soldier standing near cannot but have heard the name and the words. His face takes on a glow, and the black eyes kindle. 
"Mr. Stanley would not say to me that Willy is to blame," pouts the maiden, and her little foot is beating impatiently tattoo on the deck. "Neither would I just now if I were Mr. Stanley. But all the same he decidedly opposed the view that Mr. Lee was down on Billy, as your mother seems to think." "That's because Mr. Lee is tactical officer commanding the company, and Mr. Stanley is cadet captain." "Oh, I will take him to task if he has been been " But she does not finish. She has turned quickly in speaking, her hand clutching a little knot of bell buttons hanging by a chain at the front of her dress. She has turned just in time to catch a warning glance in Uncle Jack's twinkling eyes and to see a grim smile lurking under the gray moustache of the gentleman with the loyal legion button who is leading away the tall young lady with the dark hair. In another moment they have rejoined the third member of their party, he who first withdrew, and it is evident that something has happened which gives them all much amusement. They are chatting eagerly together, laughing not a little, although the laughter, like their words, is entirely inaudible to Miss Nan. But she feels a twinge of indignation when the tall girl turns and looks directly at her. There is nothing unkindly in the glance. There even is merriment in the dark, handsome eyes, and lurking among the dimples around that beautiful mouth. Why did those eyes, so heavily fringed, so thickly shaded, seem to her familiar as old friends? Nan could have vowed she had somewhere met that girl before, and now that girl was laughing at her. Not rudely, not aggressively, to be sure. She had turned away again the instant she saw that the little maiden's eyes were upon her. But all the same, said Nan to herself, she was laughing. They were all laughing, and it must have been because of her outspoken defense of Brother Will, and equally outspoken defiance of his persecutors. What made it worse was that Uncle Jack was laughing too. "'Do you know who they are?' she demands indignantly. "'Not I, Nan,' responds Uncle Jack. "'Never saw them before in my life. But I warrant we see them again, and at the point, too. Come, child, there's our bell, and we must start for the gangway. Your mother is hailing us now. Never mind this time, little woman,' he continues kindly, as he notes the cloud on her brow. "'I don't think any harm has been done.' but it is just as well not to be impetuous in public speech. Ah, I thought so. They are to get off here with us. Three minutes more, and a little stream of passengers flows out upon the broad government dock, and, as luck would have it, Uncle Jack and his charges are just behind the trio in which, by this time, Miss Nan is deeply, if not painfully, interested. A soldier in the undress uniform of a corporal of artillery hastens forward and, saluting, stretches forth his hand to take the satchel carried by the tall man with the brown moustache. The lieutenant's carriage is at the gate, he says, whereat Uncle Jack, who is conducting her mother just in front, looks back over his shoulder and nods compassionately at Nan. Has any dispatch been sent down to meet Colonel Stanley? she hears the tall man inquire, 
and this time Uncle Jack's backward glance is a combination of mischief and concern. "'Nothing, sir, and the adjutant's orderly is here now. This is all he brought down, and the corporal hands to the inquirer a note, the superscription of which the young officer quickly scans, then turns, and while his soft brown eyes light with kindly interest, and he bares his shapely head, accosts the lady on Uncle Jack's arm. "'Pardon me, madam. This note must be for you. Mrs. McKay, is it not?' And as her mother smiles her thanks, and the others turn away, Nan's eager eyes catch sight of Will's well-known writing. Mrs. McKay rapidly reads it as Uncle Jack is bestowing bags and bundles in the omnibus, and feeing the acceptive porter, who now rushes back to the boat in the nick of time. "'Awfully sorry I can't get up to the hotel to see you,' says the note dolorously, but by no means unexpectedly. "'I'm in confinement and can't get a permit. Come to the officer in charge's office right after supper, and he'll let me see you there a while. Stanley's officer of the day, and he'll be there to show the way. In haste, Will.' "'Now isn't that poor Willie's luck every time?' exclaims Miss Nan, her blue eyes threatening to fill with tears. "'I do think they might let him off the day we get here.' "'Unquestionably,' answers Uncle Jack, with great gravity, as he assists the ladies into the yellow omnibus. "'You duly notified the superintendent of your impending arrival, I suppose?' Mrs. McKay smiles quietly. Hers is a sweet and gentle face, lined with many a trace of care and anxiety. Her brother's whimsical ways are old acquaintances, and she knows how to treat them. But Nan is young, impulsive, and easily teased. She flares up instantly. Of course we didn't, Uncle Jack. How utterly absurd it would sound. But Willie knew we were coming, and he must have told him when he asked for his permit and it does seem too hard that he was refused. Heartless in the last degree, says Uncle Jack sympathetically, but with the same suggestive drawl. Yonder go the father and sister of the young gentleman whom you announced your intention to castigate because he didn't agree that Billy was being abused, Nan. You will have a chance this very evening, won't you? He's officer of the day, according to Billy's note, and can't escape. You'll have wound up the whole family by tattoo. Quite a good day's work. Billy's opposers will do well to take warning and keep out of the way hereafter, he continues teasingly. Oh, um, Corporal, he calls, who was the young officer who just drove off in the carriage with the lady and the gentleman? That was Lieutenant Lee, sir. Uncle Jack turns and contemplates his niece, with an expression of the liveliest admiration. "'Pon my word, Miss Nan, you are a most comprehensive young person. You've indeed let no guilty man escape.'" End of Section 10